please turn with me in our Bibles uh, this evening to the book of Leviticus. And in the church Bibles, uh, you'll find this on page 81. Leviticus chapter 1 on page 81. Uh, Lord willing, in future weeks, we want to uh, look at uh, this book and uh, uh, we want to be able to extract uh, many of the riches that this book uh, conveys. And so um, this evening we want to turn to Leviticus uh, chapter 1. This is the word of God. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. And say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar, that is, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord." If his offering uh, to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons, and the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Uh, Gordon Wenham uh, made an interesting observation. Uh, He highlighted that Uh, In the Jewish synagogue, 
the first book uh, that Jewish children are taught in their religious gatherings, their meeting places in the synagogues, the first book that Jewish children or covenant children were taught was the book of Leviticus. That might sound surprising to us. And Wenham highlights that the first book that uh, people were taught growing up in the community of faith in the Old Covenant is perhaps the last book that people in the modern church would turn to to study uh, very seriously. And Wenham uh, may be exaggerating his point to say that it is the last book, but Wenham is touching on something important. A book that was viewed as foundational for understanding the life of faith in the community of God's people in the Old Covenant that was prioritized, that this is what they build their life of faith on, can be looked at with very little regard uh, in the New Covenant uh, by many in the church. And there's reasons for that. Uh, the, The book of Leviticus is a very challenging book. Maybe you can sympathize with it. Uh, uh, As we come to a new year, lots of times people will uh, create Bible reading plans. And maybe you've gone through this exercise where you commit to reading through the entire Bible. uh, And you begin reading through Genesis. And Genesis is exciting because it tells us about creation. It tells us about God's promise to Abraham. It tells us about Jacob and the development of a people. It tells us about Joseph and how he served the Lord faithfully, uh, even in Egypt. You turn to Exodus and it tells us about the deliverance of the people from Pharaoh. It tells us about the people wandering in the wilderness. All of these stories are gripping. And then you come to Leviticus, where there's very little narration. There's very little about the sequence of events. On top of that, Leviticus is a book that is very otherworldly. It's a book of rituals, ceremonies, a book of instructions, a book of rites and sacrifices, of blood and of priesthood. It's a book that feels very disconnected from our life today. And so it is a book that has its challenges because it's hard to, to connect with it. It's hard to see how it applies or how it relates to us today. But the book of Leviticus is also challenging, not just because of the the point of contact. The book of Leviticus is challenging theologically because as new covenant Christians, as new covenant believers, we believe that the book of Leviticus has been fulfilled. That the dietary laws that are commanded here have been done away with that the sacrifices of these animals is done and should not be revived, that the Arianic priesthood that is highlighted here is over. And so if all of those things are true, if the sacrifices are done, if the priesthood of Aaron is over, if the dietary laws are no longer binding, then why study Leviticus? Isn't it irrelevant? Shouldn't we just pass on to something more pressing? But if that's what you're thinking this evening, then I would want you to just think about a couple of things. First, we want to remember that all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is profitable uh, for teaching and training, for rebuking, for making the people of God complete. 
training us in righteousness that we might be equipped for every good work. And that includes the book of Leviticus. That the book of Leviticus is relevant even to us in the new covenant because it is given by God and it is God's word. And so we want to approach it understanding that it is part of God's sacred revelation. But it's, it's important as we come to re realize uh, this evening, the book of Levit Leviticus is relevant when we approach it in the right way. Not because we're trying to figure out how to revive a temple, not because we think we should start uh, offering up animal sacrifices again, but when we come to Leviticus and we ask the question, what is Leviticus about? And when we answer it rightly, it opens up to us and shows us something that is remainingly relevant to us. The title Leviticus uh, is a title that is attributed to the book because it is a book that is talking about the Levites. But the book of Leviticus is not just a book about the Levites or the priesthood. The book of Leviticus is not even a book about instructions, even though it is heavily given to instruction. The book of Leviticus is a book about the unfolding of God's purpose, how God purposes to dwell with his people. It is about the advancement of how God is working in history to come about to be with his people, to make his presence known with his people. And when we understand that, we see how Leviticus remains important to us today because it's revealing to us the God who is, is a God who desires to have fellowship with his creatures. And this is an advancement in redemptive history, which anticipates ultimately what we find in Christ and ultimately what we all long for by faith. That idea of what the book of Leviticus is about is something that you see even from the opening verse. If you turn to verse one, notice what it says. The Lord God called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That highlights to us that the book of Leviticus is a book of continuation. We should read the book of Leviticus as a continuation of the book of Exodus. It is carrying on with what Exodus has brought to the forefront. You see that because that phrase, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him, is a phrase that we see elsewhere in the book of Exodus. You remember where it is first said, it is said to Moses at the burning bush that Moses saw the burning bush and it says the Lord called to Moses that he spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And the result of that was is that the Lord sent him to Egypt. He sent him to Pharaoh to draw the people out from Egypt, from oppression, from slavery. But that phrase, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him occurs again. It occurs again at Mount Sinai. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to Moses. And the result was is that God gave the law to the people of Israel. They were now a people that were covenanted to the Lord, being given the revelation of how God's law was to guide them as a people. 
The book of Exodus uses that phrase again another time when the Lord instructs Moses about building a tabernacle. It says the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him, giving him the plans for the tabernacle or the tent of meeting, as it says here. In other words, the book of Exodus is building towards this understanding of how it is that God purposes to dwell with his people. And as you read through the book of Exodus, God promises his people, I will dwell with you. And at the end of Exodus, the tabernacle is built. This tent that was meant to signify in a unique way God's presence. That God's purpose is developing here where God has purpose to dwell with his people. And now the tabernacle has been built. And it tells us at the end of Exodus that the glory of the Lord filled the tent of meeting so that Moses could not stand in the tabernacle. And then there's this tension point. God, who has purposed and promised to dwell with his people, has also made it clear that his people are a rebellious people. They are a sinful people. So how is it that the living God, who is holy, can dwell with sinners? How is it that there can be a point of access when God is pure and we are defiled by sin? The book of Leviticus is opening up that question and advancing God's purposes. The tabernacle and later the temple becomes that meeting place between God and sinners. There is a way in which God is found where he can dwell with his people and not ignore their sin. And so as we come to look at this, just even from the opening verse here, you're seeing what is Leviticus about? And what is key is, is that we don't come away thinking it's a book about a bunch of instructions. It's a book about a lot of sacrifices. The book of Leviticus is about God's purpose to dwell with his people. It's a book about how God has managed to make a way in which we can come before him and have fellowship with him. Because God desires to be with his people. And then we begin to see how this is so relevant for us. How the incarnation makes sense. And how ultimately the dwelling of God with humanity is something that will be realized in the consummation. And so as we're uh, turning to the book of Leviticus this evening, uh, we see that, uh, uh, as Michael Morales says, the drama of Leviticus turns upon this hope how the abode, how the dwelling of God can possibly become the meeting place between the Lord and Israel. Leviticus, it can be um, broken down into two basic categories. The opening number of chapters, the opening 10 chapters are really about accessing, coming before this God in worship. And the second half of Leviticus is really about living before this God in worship. So the first question is, how do we come before this God? And the second is, how do we relate with this God in devotion? How do we live as holy, knowing that this God is holy? And then we begin to see that Leviticus is is not so foreign or so um, cryptic. 
we begin to see that it is meant to lead us in this understanding of how do we come before this God? How do we approach him? The psalmist would ask the question, who can ascend into the house of the Lord? Who can stand in his presence? Only one who has a pure hand and uh, a pure heart can do so. That question remains relevant. How can we come before this God? And Leviticus is leading us through the old covenant to uh, understand this living God that we come before. This evening then we want to look at uh, uh, the burnt offerings. Uh, The number of opening chapters deal with five different kinds of offerings. And we'll look at each of them, Lord willing. Uh, The first three are offerings that were both mandatory at times, but also voluntary at other times. They would be sacrifices that people would make of their own choice uh, on their own occasion. And so this evening we want to look at this first one, uh, the burnt offering. And we want to see that because God is... Uh, uh, of supreme worth that we are to acknowledge him uh, and to depend on him uh, by his grace. We want to think about this offering, uh, what the offering is, and then secondly, the outcome of this offering very briefly. Well, first, uh, uh, the offering itself. It says there in verse 2 that when the Lord called to Moses, he said, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Israel at this time was living in an agricultural society. It shouldn't be surprising uh, that their sacrifices are uh, from animals. Uh, But you'll notice that their sacrifices had to be domesticated animals, uh, not wild animals. Because there is a cost that is to be associated with whatever they give unto the Lord. Uh, It is to express the value of God that they give something that is costly to them themselves. But here in verse 3, this offering that is first mentioned is called a burnt offering. Uh, It makes sense that this is the first offering that Leviticus mentions. First, because it is the most commonly referenced offering in the Old uh, Covenant scriptures. Uh, And one of the first ones mentioned as well. If you remember uh, the book of Genesis, uh, you remember, you young people, uh, what happens when Noah is delivered from the floodwaters? When Noah comes out from the ark, he does what? He offers an offering to God. But he actually offers a particular kind of offering. It's called a burnt offering. It's the offering that we're talking about here. And that burnt offering, the word burnt, uh, is a word that simply means to lift. Uh, It means to ascend. And so the animal that is being sacrificed is literally being transformed before their eyes. It is being transformed into smoke. And that smoke lifts up. And as the worshiper offers that sacrifice to God, they are visually seeing their acceptance before God. As the smoke rises up into heaven, they are to believe that they have access and acceptance with the God of heaven. That as that smoke rises up, they are looking to God and seeking God by his grace for his provision and acknowledging his great worth. But what makes the burnt offerings distinct? 
is not the smoke rising up. That would happen with each of the offerings. But what makes the burnt offering unique is, is that in this offering, the whole sacrifice was devoted to the Lord, save the skins and that which was defiled or unclean. Everything else was consumed as a gift to God. Uh, other sacrifices that we'll look at, uh, a portion was to be distributed to the priests. It was a way of caring for the priesthood. It was a way of giving food to those who served in the tabernacle. It had a, a function, a practical function of helping uh, uh, Aaron and his sons. There were also even, uh, there was also a, an offering that the, the offerer themselves would share in the food. And so different offerings had different instructions. Some, a portion was given to the priests, some to the priests and the worshiper. But this one is unique because in the burnt offering, the whole is given to God. And you can appreciate the significance of that. Because in giving the whole offering to God, it is saying that God is to be given all praise and glory. That is, God is of supreme worth. And we render unto him all because he is worthy. And so whether this was done at stipulated times or whether it was done voluntarily, it is expressing something of the value of God. Whether they brought a bull or whether they brought a goat or whether they brought a bird, whether a person was rich or poor, no one was excluded from the ability to say something about the worth of God. Anyone could worship God. They could come with whatever means they had and they could say, my God is great. And I want to give him a gift that expresses greatness. You think about that even with the Christmas season coming upon us. Uh, when people give a gift, uh, no matter how expensive the gift is, it's the idea that they, they took the time. It's the fact that they, they took the, the time to, to, to make that card. They, they wrapped that present. They, they built that craft. It's the, the fact that they poured themselves into thinking about what would, what would they enjoy. That they're expressing something about how much they appreciate and value the one who is to receive that gift. Here the people of Israel were saying, were being taught, when you come, this is one way in which you can worship God. You can give God a complete sacrifice, saying God is of supreme worth, and he deserves all glory. And so you give him all things. Uh, this was a sacrifice that was offered at different times, uh, different rituals and ceremonies in the Old Covenant. Uh, it was used, for instance, on the Day of Atonement. Uh, but it was also used in connection with the healing of a leper uh, or after uh, uh, the impurities associated with childbirth. But you notice here very easily uh, this chapter breaks into three sections or three paragraphs. And there are three different types of burnt offerings. Uh, there can be the burnt offering of a bull or from the herd, uh, a, a burnt offering from the flock, or a burnt offering of the birds. So you see there's different categories of burnt offerings. And what it's teaching us is that no one is excluded. Anyone, 
in any station of life can express the greatness of God and have something to give. But it is always associated with costliness. It is expressing something at a cost. But we also are told something about how this whole ceremony happened. Uh, Again, going back to verse 3, it tells us that if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Uh, This, again, uh, the emphasis here is without blemish, uh, meaning that What you're offering to the Lord was to be something that was worth something. Uh, If something was no good to you, then it doesn't express value or worth. And so it was important that what they were giving up was something that was valued by them because it says something about the God that they are sacrificing to. But something else is said about the ceremony, uh, something that uh, is striking there in verse 4. It says that he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The purpose of the offering was to find acceptance with God. That one can't just come into the presence of God and be accepted apart from sacrifice. But it's through the sacrifice that atonement would be made. That word atonement becomes important. We see it in the New Testament. Uh, Atonement is an important concept. And in Leviticus, atonement is a very broad term. Uh, It can be used in a variety of ways. So objects can have atonement made for them. That things that aren't even sin can have atonement made for them. And so what atonement means in Leviticus is one of two ideas. And oftentimes those two are going along together. One is the idea of payment. And one is the idea of cleansing. It purges away something that is defiled or contaminated. Or it has the idea of addressing a wrong. And of covering that by a payment of a price. And those two concepts help us understand what is happening in worship. The people were being taught, you don't just come into worship and say, it's, I can just come as I am. But the people were recognizing that there's something wrong, that the barrier exists on account of sin. That because of sin, a payment must be made. And because of sin, we are unclean before God and we need to be washed. And if we are going to be accepted in God's presence, there must be a sacrifice that would cover our guilt and cleanse us of our wrongdoing. The movement then into God's presence is based on a sacrifice in their place. Again, all of this is emphasizing dependence. The people were being taught how to approach God in worship. It was not sufficient for them to acknowledge there's a God. It wasn't enough for them to simply say, sure, there's a God that exists. But rather, as they approached this God, they were to recognize that they could not be accepted apart from their defilement being atoned for and only by sacrifice that the Lord himself had commanded. To come before a holy God is serious business. 
to come before this God, one must come in a way that honors his name. And so this burnt offering is communicating that. But go back to verse 4 and notice something else that it says. When you come to offer an offering to the Lord, the person didn't just come to the tent of meeting. And they didn't just come with a sacrifice. They came to the priests of Aaron, and it says in verse 4, He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him. That when they did that, they put their hand on the animal. That animal is about to die. There's a recognition of substitution happening right there, and of identification. There's a recognition of transference, that it is only on the basis of the sacrifice that they themselves can be accepted. It's only on the basis of the blood being shed that they can be cleansed of their impurity, just as we were singing in Psalm 51. And so they were uh, to come, but they were to lay their hands on the head of that animal. Now, what does it mean when it says to lay your hand on an animal? The word there is a word that means to lean heavily upon. It's a word that means to depend. It's the same word that the prophet Amos said that the people were to lean against the wall. It's the same word that was used with Samson. You remember when Samson was caught by the Philistines and his eyes were put out. And then he asks to be guided towards the pillars so that he could rest his hands on those pillars. He put all his weight on those pillars and he was pressing against them. And the idea here is is that as the people come and they bring their sacrifice, they are leaning heavily on that sacrifice and identifying it is only by sacrifice in my place that I can have access before this God. It is only by the blood that atones that I can be accepted in God's sight. And so here we see this this recognition of substitution that shapes the way that they come before God. After the animal was killed, the priests would take the blood and sprinkle or toss it against the sides of the altar, against this great big altar, two and a half meters square, one and a half meters high. That blood uh, was meant to cleanse and to atone for sin. But as they did that, uh, they were recognizing that uh, they were uh, symbolically cleansed and accepted. But all of this is meant to picture the way of access into God's presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel doesn't change. The gospel, according to Leviticus, is teaching us that God has provided a means by which the unclean can be made clean, that there is a way of access and that a payment has been made on behalf of sinners to cover the wrongs that they have committed. The death of a substitute gives them access into God's presence. And as the smoke is lifted up into the heavens, the Israelite was to go home believing that they were accepted before God. That as they offered up that sacrifice, according to God's command, they were to believe that they had been approved in God's sight. Now we know that the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sins, and that'll be something we come back to. But they were recognizing that God's command 
was that through a sacrifice, their defilements were washed away. And so as they came, they were leaning heavily on that sacrifice because God commanded it. And they were believing there was a way to be forgiven. But all of that is pointing us to what Jesus himself comes to do in the fullness of time. We read from Psalm 40. And in Psalm 40, it expresses the sentiment of Christ. That, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. That it was the will of Christ to fulfill a God's purposes. That he would make his own life a sacrifice for sin in order to make others acceptable in God's sight. The Apostle Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed, that is a payment, has been made on your behalf from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not by perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It is through Christ that we can have access into God's presence. And you step back and you think about the symbolism. The Israelite sees the smoke going up and they say there is a way into God's presence. We can be accepted into heaven just as this smoke has entered into heaven by transformation. This sacrifice that I identified with has been approved in God's sight. But in the fullness of time, Christ came into this world that he comes bearing the sins of his people. And ultimately, Christ ascends into heaven. And because Christ has ascended into heaven, the new covenant Christian realizes, I can have access because Christ has ascended. I can be forgiven because Christ's sacrifice was in my place. And so I trust in him for the salvation from my sin. But you notice something else about this whole uh, ceremony, and it's very important for understanding the burnt offering. Not only does it say that a, a sacrifice was to be brought, not only does it say that the people were to lay their hands on the sacrifice, but something that comes from that is, is how can we be accepted in the presence of God? And Leviticus is teaching us that it is by depending on that sacrifice. But the worshiper does that. The worshiper lays their hands on the sacrifice. That's not something that the priest can do. The priest has a role to play in this whole ceremony. The priest is going to offer up the sacrifice. The priest is going to uh, cut up the animal. The priest is going to pour the blood. But it's the worshiper personally that has to lay their hands on that sacrifice. There's something individual about worship. You young people, as you are being brought up in the church, coming to faith is something that is personal. Your mom and your dad cannot believe on your behalf. You must yourself recognize that you are morally unclean. You must yourself recognize that there is a payment that must be made for your sin. You must yourself individually lean heavily upon the appointed sacrifice. You must yourself come to faith because faith is something personal. 
And so the question becomes, have you come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you come to put your faith in him? And maybe hearing those words sounds mystical. It sounds hard. What does it mean to believe? I can remember growing up in the church and hearing that. Have you come to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to trust in Jesus? Leviticus is teaching us. Leviticus says it means to lean upon. It means to depend upon. It means that you put your weight upon it and you act accordingly. And so to trust in Jesus means that you understand that you're a sinner. It means that you understand that God is a holy God, but it means that you are now depending on Jesus as your way of access and approval before God. It means that you recognize that in Christ you can be accepted and you live accordingly. That's what it means to trust. It means that you understand what God has said and you rest in that fact. And so you see a picture here of the gospel. We are depending on God's way into his presence. So we see here something of the offering. Do you believe? That's something personal. That's something that you yourself must do. Others can't do it for you. I've had conversations with people and I've asked them, do you believe? And I've heard the answer, my grandmother did. Faith is something individual. We must all respond to God's summons. We must all depend on God's grace. But Leviticus here is saying there is a way of access to the one who depends on God's appointed means. Jesus came into this world, it says, to give himself as a fragrant offering and as a sacrifice to God. He gave himself as a sacrifice. And if we're believing in him, then we can be confident of God's favor and of God's grace. By your mercy and your grace, I will draw near to your temple because there is forgiveness. So what is the outcome of this? We've already said it is the atonement that is the payment of their wrongdoings, that is the, the cleansing of their defilement. It is that they would be accepted in God's sight, as it says there in verse 4. So it is this idea not only of acceptance, but of being pleasing in God's sight. It says there in verse 9 and 13 and 17 uh, that it'll be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is something that the Lord delights in. Again, that's what we see in Jesus Christ. God sent his son into this world so that through him we might have life. Are you trusting in Jesus? That means depending on him. Are you depending on him uh, to uh, have forgiveness but also acceptance with God? We don't need bulls and goats or birds. We need Jesus. But when we have Jesus, then the writer of the New Testament, the book of Romans, Paul says, 
by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why? Because God is of supreme worth. That's what the burnt offering was about. What is supremely worth your life? What do you acknowledge as most worthy? The Levites could tell you. God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we think about the burnt offering, that we would recognize through all these ceremonies, the pictures that they point us to in the Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize uh, that our God is a God who is holy, but also a God who is gracious. And we thank you, Lord, that through the precious blood of Christ, through the Lamb who is without any blemish, there is a way of access that we can have atonement with our God. So we pray, Lord, that we would willingly render unto you the praises, acknowledging your supremacy, acknowledging your worthiness. And we ask that you would go before us in Jesus' name. Amen.